I walk down to the law school, I walk into the registrar's office, and I stop dead because sitting at the desk as the night assistant to the registrar at Fordham Law School is Michael J. O'Hara, the man who molested me. Welcome to Secret Life Podcast. I'm Brianne Davis-Gant. Mark and I are blown away by the tremendous support on the heels of our 150th episode. We're excited to welcome thousands of new subscribers and wanted to share a few of our past listener favorites. Thank you again for subscribing, favoriting, and sharing. Now sit back and enjoy the show. This episode contains discussions of molestation and trauma. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the Secret Life Podcast. Tell me your secret. I'll tell you mine. When I first started my recovery 11 years ago, I struggled through the textbook-like material on the subject. I wanted to make the addiction and the recovery from it accessible and relatable to more people by telling it in an entertaining way. Well, I'm super excited to announce I've released my first book, Secret Life of a Hollywood Sex and Love Addict. If I can help just one person find a solution or at least realize they're not broken or alone, then writing this has been worth it. You can pick up the book exclusively at Amazon or signed copy at secretlifenovel.com. And the best way to support our podcast is to subscribe and share. If you haven't left a review or rating on Apple Podcasts yet, please do. It'll help more people find our show. And if you want to be a guest, shoot me a note at secretlifepodcast at iCloud.com. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to Secret Life Podcast. I'm Brianne Davis-Gant. Today, I'm pulling back the curtains of all kinds of human secrets. We'll hear about what people are hiding from themselves or others. You know, those deep, dark secrets that we'll probably want to take to our grave, or those lighter, funnier secrets that are just plain embarrassing. Really, the how, what, when, where, and why of it all. My guest today is Jim. Jim, I have a question for you. Dun, dun, dun. What is your secret? Well, my secret starts when I was a prosecutor in New York City in the Bronx. And I got a call from my brother and my older brother. Mm-hmm. And he said, now that you're a prosecutor, we should do something about that camp director at the camp we used to go to. Uh-huh. And, and I said, well, what do you mean? He said, one day when I, when nobody else was at the camp, when everybody else had left, he snuck into the director's office and we were never supposed to go into the director's office, but he snuck in and he said in the closet, he found three shopping bags filled with Polaroid pictures of him molesting boys. Wow. And I said, I thought I was the only one. And at that point, I was kind of blown away. And the next day I went to the FBI, NYPD, Joint Sexual Exploitation of Children Task Force. And I told them what happened to me when I was a teenager at this camp. And they immediately started an investigation. And I went back to work and I was at, you know, Bronx Criminal and Family Court and uh, working every day in criminal cases. And I didn't tell a soul. I didn't tell anybody what was going on. And as the days turned into weeks, turned into months, 
the agent that was running the investigation told me that they have tracked this guy to 13 different Catholic schools over the course of 23 years. And each time there's an allegation of sexual victimization, he's confronted, he resigns on the spot, and they let him walk away, going down to the next school, right down the street, and hunting again. Oh, I'm just so you know, I, my stomach is like in my chest right now, because as you know, I have been molested also. So it's bringing up a lot of feelings right now when with your talking, like I kind of want to throw up. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to <laughs> have you have that reaction, but they told me that because they weren't able to find any current cases that they wanted me to meet with him and wear a wire. And I said, not just no way. I said, no fucking way. Yeah. I'm sitting down and having a conversation with this guy. I mean, I've had these nightmares where I meet him in an alley, but I always have a machine gun or something. Yeah. And so, you know, the investigation continues on and I go about my work. And at some point, you know, they just tell me, look, we've interviewed all the students, his, his coaching teams that he coached and all that kind of stuff. And we don't have any current case. So your case is way beyond the statute of limitations. So we can't do anything about that. So it looks like this case might just go into limbo. And it just really destroyed me. I was so upset about it. But I knew that you know, if nobody's talking, unfortunately, most victims don't come forward. And yeah. because of that, offenders pretty much have free reign. They can keep offending and offending and offending and nobody ever stops them. Was that thought in your head of if I let him keep doing this, he's going to hurt more and more kids? Was it just like playing in your head nonstop while you were trying to do your job? Absolutely. There's no question about it. And I was trying to help kids who were going through it now. I was prosecuting those kinds of cases, but it never let me sleep or rest because I was thinking about what he was out there doing. And at the same time, it was getting close to a, a particular time period deadline in my own career. And that was my boss comes in and says, Jim, you're the only one of the new lawyers who hasn't filed their paper for admission to the bar. Mm -hmm. And that just means that when you're a prosecutor for a city or state, they typically give you an 18 month buy. In other words, they need prosecutors so badly that they allow you once you pass the bar, which I had done to actually start trying cases right away because the application to get into the DA's office or the corporation council where I was is the same as the bar. Mm -hmm. So they just let you go right into prosecuting and you have 18 months to file your paperwork. And I hadn't done it yet because the paperwork is basically 25 pages of everything there is to know about you, every place you ever went, every place you ever lived, every place you ever worked, all your family members, everything. And I did not want to put him down and that camp down wow. as a place that I had been. And I just was just, it creeped me out, especially because we're in the middle of investigating him. So I just didn't do it. But my boss said, you will lose your job. I was like, all right, I got to just put this behind me. I mean, I'm an adult now. I mean, why am I letting this, you know, run my me? life or affect yeah. me so much? I should be over this. Right. And I just said, you know, I, I just said, you know, grow up. And 
I called in sick the next day so I could just fill out the paperwork. And I spent the next day home. I called in sick. I filled out all the paperwork, getting all those addresses and dates of my travel and every place I had worked and all that information. And you have to attach your law school transcripts to this and then send it into the bar. And the bar is the organization that licenses lawyers for practice. So since my law school was just six blocks away, Fordham University School of Law, from where I lived, I am, I'm close enough to where I could walk down there and go to the registrar and have them give me the record. So I walk down to the law school, I walk into the registrar's office, and I stopped dead because sitting at the desk as the night assistant to the registrar at Fordham Law School is Michael J. O'Hara, the man who molested me. No. I was in shock. I had just convinced myself that he'd never be in my life, that this is ridiculous. Why are you worried about this? I felt like I walked into the twilight zone. It was really like impossible. How bizarre. I literally stood there. My jaw hit the floor. I kind of half of me wanted to launch myself over the desk and kill him. And the other half wanted to run away. And fortunately, the dean walks in just at that point. And I said to her, I use my upset to say, look, I'm going to get fired unless this is like handled right away. Could you personally deal with this? Because what I realized as soon as he opened his mouth, he said, yeah, I noticed you graduated here a couple of years ago. So he's been following you? He's sitting right next to the alumni files. And all that information that I was worried about him getting, he already has it. It was horrible. So when the dean was going through the stuff, I wanted to write on a piece of paper, fire him. He's a pedophile. He's a sex offender. But I was like, I I just was too scared to do it. It was too much of a secret. And so when she said she would take care of it and I started to leave as I was walking out, he said to me, oh, yeah, I was sorry to hear about your mother's death a couple of years ago. And that was it. I just was so pissed off because he was the reason why I had never resolved the conflict between me and my mother. Because when I was a kid, she would say to me, Jimmy, you used to be such a happy kid. What happened? What's wrong? And I could never tell her, you know, I could never use those words. And so did you feel like holding that secret from your mom disconnected you from her? Absolutely. Not only that, but I mean, physically, I just kept her away from me so she wouldn't keep asking me. And I just stayed to myself. I became an introvert. Yeah, absolutely. And it's like he killed your soul a little bit. I remember when I talked to a therapist one time, like, can a pedophile ever heal? Can they ever change their sexual preference. And she said to me, no, they can't. It's in their DNA and that they don't think they're hurting somebody. They, it's almost like they think it's loving and they want the purity of the child. Well, there is, there's certainly truth to that, but there's a spectrum of child sex offenders. They're not all pedophiles. And mm-hmm. certainly he wasn't a pedophile. Pedophiles are so, people who are only sexually attracted to prepubescent children. Anybody who reaches the age of puberty is no longer sexually interesting to them. But preferential child sex offenders can be uh, sexually attracted to children as old as 17. They're still gotcha. children. And there are two different types of sex offenders. There are two different polar opposite ends. One is situational. These are offenders who aren't 
legitimately sexually attracted to children, but will take advantage of children sexually if they're available and they want to. And the other side is people who are definitively going only, to the parks, going to those specific places yeah, to find. But their preferential are actually sexually attracted to children. And there are people who are only sexually attracted to children. However, there are others that move back along that spectrum who are sexually attracted to age appropriate people and to children. So wow. there's a whole spectrum of behavior. And I learned this over the course of my career. But at that moment, I made up my mind when he said that about my mother. And I knew that that he's the reason why she died without me being able to resolve what, you know, the conflict between us. And so I was really pissed off. And so I went outside and I called the FBI and I said, I know where he is right now. Come and wire me up. And so they did. They came. They put a wire on me. I went back in and they asked me to set up a meeting with him. And they were very clear about what they wanted me to say. They said, look, I need to talk to you about something. And it's all, you're the only person in the world that I could talk to about it. Can we get together and talk? And he said, yeah. And we set up a meeting for like Friday after work, right? 10 o'clock mm -hmm, or something. Mm -hmm. And so I was really nervous up until, you know, that entire time. And then that night the agents came and they wired me up and I went and I can remember it was a Halloween. And so there were people in costumes walking across the street. And I remember being very conscious of my footfalls because the tape was recording. And I just remember this being like some bizarre scene out of a weird movie. <laughs> and I go into the bar and and he's there and we sit down in a booth and he basically, you know, he basically, you know, gets in my face right away. He's like, well, what, what is it that you wanted to talk about? And I'm like, I'm grab my beer. And I said, can I just at least relax for a second and have a beer? And he's like, you always were a wimp. And that was immediately trying to reset the imbalance when I was a kid. And, and that's how he dealt with us. And so you know, I just played with it. I just went along with it and, and said, well, I'm sorry. I just, I'm having trouble talking about this. And he goes, and he said exactly what the agent said he would say. Like he wants acceptance. He's looking for acceptance. So he wants me to say, well, what he did wasn't that bad. And now I, I understand it and that kind of thing. And I was just a kid then, so I didn't understand. And so he started talking to me and bragging to me about all these kids that he had molested starting like in 1969 or something. Wow. And how did you, know, you not hit him in the face? Well, because I knew that, you know, I was trying to make a case against them. And yeah. I also knew that there was an FBI agent and two detectives sitting right near me and <laughs> that it wasn't wouldn't be a good idea. So met with him for two hours and 47 minutes that night. And and then he only told me about cases that were well beyond the statute of limitations, though. So I had to meet with him five other times. And finally, on the sixth time. Yeah. I went to his house and I was really scared to do it, but I did. And while I was there, he, I went to the restroom and I could see into his room and there was a, a table with a picture and a, on the picture was a frame that said, congratulations. And it was this kid shooting a basketball and I could see his number. Let's say his number was 47. I could see that number. And I knew that this is probably a special kid to him. And so I told the agent, the agent went back and interviewed 47. He, de he denied having been victimized, but the agent didn't give up. He went back to the principal and said, is there anybody else from this team that 
you know, that I haven't talked to you. And she said, well, there's the scorekeeper, but he never really played on the team. So the agent went back, Al McDonald, and interviewed the scorekeeper. And he did say that O'Hara had sexually victimized him. And Mm. then he said, and one day when I was leaving his house after being victimized, I was walking down the sidewalk in the front of his house. And I look up and number 47 is walking towards his house. And he sees me and his eyes go wide. And then he just looks down and walks right past me. And he never talked to me again at school. So I think he was probably victimized. We were able to finally get justice to a point. They actually let him plead guilty to a lesser offense. And I was not there. They didn't like tell me I was in the middle of another trial. So they just went ahead and did it. And I was devastated because I wanted to be there. I wanted to be able to see that happen and participate in it and let him know that I was part of this. Yeah. And I just remember hearing about that. And my office mate, Barbara McArdle, she's just the salt of the earth, a wonderful person. I just, she knew something was really wrong. And she asked me, she calls me Seamus because she's Irish. And she said, what's wrong, Seamus? And and I just started telling her and I just broke down sobbing in her arms and sobbing on her shoulder. And she was just so good because I just, I didn't want anybody to know anybody that I worked with because I didn't want to be labeled a victim. Right. And so fortunately, though, a couple of weeks later, they had the sentencing. And the night before sentencing, I found out that the sentencing report was going to say that they recommend probation. Uh And I asked the probation officer, because she worked in the same courthouse I did, why that was. And she said, well, the defendant said that's what they promised him. And I said, did you check? with the district attorney. Did you check with me, the victim in the case? And I pick up the phone and I call the commissioner of probation, who was my old boss and a good friend of mine, who's now her boss. And I tell him, and she could hear him yelling over the phone, either she rewrites that probation report or she writes her resignation letter. So she rewrote it, and but the judge had already called up and already heard that it was gonna be probation, already told the defense attorney it was gonna be probation. So the next morning I went to the judge's chambers and I explained to him the whole thing. I gave him a new report and he said, this is horrible. I'm going to give him jail time, but I can't give him much. So he gave him a five-year split sentence, which means he spent about a year in jail and the rest on probation. And what he did was he told his family and friends that he was just going on sabbatical, saying that he was in Europe traveling around instead of saying that he was in prison. But the good thing was that I was able to actually come out of the chambers with the judge and walk up to him in the court. And he tried to shake my hand and say, oh, you didn't need to do this. I was going to quit teaching. I was like, I smacked it away. I said, don't even think that you can fool me anymore. I'm not some stupid kid. I'm going to be watching you for the rest of your miserable life. This was a slap on your wrist. Don't ever go near another kid again. And I was able to walk out the door and slam it in his face and just basically start a new chapter in my life. Wow. What I didn't expect was that when the agent took me to breakfast or lunch after court proceedings that did, we're sitting there and he says, you know, you did a great job and, you know, you transcribed tapes and you helped us with the investigation you did undercover work, you know, that's all great. And he pushed a stack of papers over to me and I said, what's this? He said, it's an application to the FBI. And I literally said this, they would take me even though I was a victim. And he's like, of course, you're a victim of a crime. That says nothing about you. Of course you would. Wow. Even, even with that, someone had to tell you that. 
Right. Yeah. That began the beginning of transforming a tough situation that I was in and a secret that I was keeping from everybody to something that I'm not ashamed of anymore. And when I went to the FBI Academy, that agent was transferring out of New York and they actually assigned me to his spot on that very squad. Wow. So I became an agent working to help investigate and put away child sex offenders. And everybody I worked with already knew. So I didn't have anything to hide from anybody. And it was just such a transformation in terms of going from thinking I had to keep this secret to become a professional to using what I knew, my experience as a professional. And it just made all the difference in my life. That was a turning point that I can't ever thank them enough for. And I mean, you said so many beautiful things and I didn't want to interrupt, but I also want to look at why you held the secret for so long. I like to look at the seven deadly sins. You know, there's pride, greed, lust, gluttony, envy, anger, and sloth. Do any of those connect to why you held that secret for so many years? Well, I think, you know, on his part, it was lust. On my part, I guess it could have been pride. Um, I didn't want my image tarnished. I didn't want to be looked at as a victim. I didn't understand enough about it then. Of course, since then, I've had, you know, over 30 years of experience um, building um, investigations and being educated and teaching people. Um, I became an expert witness in the area of child sexual victimization. I've testified in many trials and in many thousands of affidavits. I have a tremendously great appreciation for what grooming is and what he did yes. and how he manipulated me and the other victims and, and also about compliant victimization and, and how difficult it is for children to overcome the stigma in their own minds. And now I try to set myself out as an example of how you can do that and how you can move forward. And it doesn't actually kill your soul or it doesn't actually destroy your life. Now, many times we're very well-meaning and we make statements like that to the press and kids who are victimized or might be victimized in the future or adults who have been victimized in the past hear that and they take it inside and they internalize that and they believe it. But it's not true. It doesn't destroy your soul. It doesn't destroy your life. You can have a meaningful, wonderful, loving experience in life afterwards. You just have to deal with it. You can't yeah. just try to hide it and hope that it goes away. It's something you need to talk to people about. Therapy is a wonderful thing. I went to therapy. I did I too. dealt with it. Yeah, it's a really good thing. So who do you think harmed and benefited from keeping this secret? Well, I mean, one thing that's always haunted me was I didn't know there were other victims. Mm -hmm. I thought I was the only one until my brother told me that. And so obviously the guys who were victimized after me were harmed. And it's just that kind of, that, that hurts, that haunts me. But I've met a bunch of them. I've gotten involved in uh, an international group that helps child sex victims as they grow into men. And it's a, it's a really great organization. It's Male Survivor Book. And I've met a number of guys who, who were victimized by O'Hara. And we have sort of a loose uh, network of 
friends who will support each other and talk to each other when, when issues come up. So there's that, you know, and, and this past year, New York State opened up the statute of limitations for one year for child sexual victimization crimes. And so a bunch of us got together and we filed a lawsuit against the Catholic Church for moving him around from school to school to school. That's so not great. doing anything. Yeah, not doing anything to protect her in the next school. So um, hopefully that will, uh, one of the things we're asking for is that churches are mandated reporters and they are not allowed to do internal investigations and they're not allowed to sign settlement agreements with victims and survivors that they can't talk about it. That is yeah. all negative. It's all completely helping the church and helping the offenders get away with it. And we have to stop that. We have to be adamant about stopping that. So those are all things that we're asking for, and I hope we get them. And my last question for you is, what would you tell someone that went through the same similar situation if they're struggling to come out and have a voice? I would say that you're not alone. There literally are tens of millions of people in the United States alone, and certainly many more around the world who've gone through exactly the same thing. There are people that can help you. You can reach out, you can talk to a counselor, you can talk to a therapist, you can talk to somebody, a trusted adult, and you can tell them and they can make it stop. You are worth it. There isn't anything in the world that people despise more than child sexual victimization. So if you come forward, it is a serious crime that's being committed against you. If you tell one person and they don't listen, someone else and keep going and keep talking because people will listen today much more than they did in the past. And don't be afraid that you're going to be labeled. That's just not true anymore. People now understand yeah. it. And it, we know it's not your fault. It's always the fault of the adult. They're always responsible, no matter what you did, no matter how you participated, no matter how many times it happened, it's still the adult's fault because they manipulated you and the law protects you as a child, not the offender. And I also wanted to say for me, I always thought I was broken or something was wrong with me that this happened and that wasn't it at all. I was victimized. Yeah, I agree. And yeah, so if you are struggling out there, if something happened to you, please just speak about it because the moment I let it out, this like relief came because I wasn't alone anymore. And I'm glad you got to that place. Well, thank you so much for sharing your secret today with us. And until next time, bye. Thanks again for listening to the show. Please subscribe, rate, share, or send me a note at secretlifepodcast.com. And if you like to check out my book, head over to secretlifenovel.com or Amazon to pick up a copy for yourself or someone you love. Thanks again. See you soon. 